we started a series called The Story of the World. I really like that title because the story of the world, our world is traceable up to about 7,000 years of history. So if you go all the way back uh, to the civilization, China, India, Mesopotamia, and I think these are the three credible civilizations that archaeological is able to dig all the way. So it tells a story. Uh, and many historians will look at the world and try to capture a narrative. Uh, for some people, it was a very depressed narrative. When they think about the story of the world, they think about the world is not going anywhere. They think the world is just a whole vicious cycle of keeps on happening, 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 and there's, there's, there's nothing much to talk about it. Uh, so different people kind of look at history very differently. So today, the story of the world was trying to look at it from the creator lens, the one that who created the world and how the world has evolved to where we are. Uh, why is this story very important? Uh, because as you read the Bible, you are going to read all the different small little stories. You're going to read about David and Goliath. Uh, and how does that little story fits into the bigger story? You're going to read about the rebellion of the nation of Israel, the king that did evil before the Lord. How in the world that fits into the bigger story? So we thought that the story of the world helps to give you a big framework of how when God created the world, what He had in mind and some of the things that has happened. So that as you read all the small little stories, you're able to fit into the bigger framework. Not only that, so that you and I, as you write the story of your life, you are able to fit into the bigger framework. So the day will come when you are 60, 70, 80, 80, 90, depending on how much McDonald's you eat. Uh, you're going to sit down with your sons and your daughters and your grandchildren and you're going to tell your story. And I hope by then, when you and I tell the story, we know our story fits in the bigger story of the story of the world, the narrative that God has when He created us. So that's that little thinking. And stories has a way to kind of compel us uh, once you understand because it has emotion, it has truth, it has the nuances that makes truth so powerful. Now, so today we're going to look at the little phrase called chosen nation. So this is our week three. Let me kind of walk you through week one and week two. So week one, uh, Eugene kind of started the series because he, it was kind of his homework in his Every Nation Seminary. And uh, week one was creation. Creation was trying to tell a story that we are the peak of God's creation. And God created us because He desired a relationship, which is why we were created on the last days, Adam and Eve. And on the last days, when God has done with every other creation, when God created man, man opened up his eyes, he saw not only God, he saw the beauty of the universe. So I want you to know that God created this fantastic environment so that to enjoy the relationship that we can have with Him and with each other. So we kind of talk through that week one, creation. Uh, week two, we talk about the fall. So something happened. God created man and part of God is love. His creation was out of love. And the perfect expression of love was to give man the ability to choose, which is because love has to have a choice. Uh, today, you and I sitting here, you are having your, if you are, if you are having a loved one next to you, I hope you chose them. It wasn't forced. 
I saw James and Wei Mei. James, Wei Mei, the father there, Michael. Did, did you force? No? Okay, well, his choice, right? Okay, correct. Yeah, okay. So it was, it was his choice and her choice because love, the greatest expression of love was choice. So when God made man, he gave them the ability to choose. But bear in mind, God created the best environment to encourage people to make the right choice, which is why he made the whole entire Garden of Eden and he wanted man's partnership to us to tilt and to take care, to be fruitful, multiply. And he told man, you can eat any of the fruits in the tree except one. He did not tell man, you cannot eat except one that you can eat. He did, it wasn't turned around. It wasn't an ecosystem where it forces men to rebel. It was an ecosystem to create the best environment for men to continue to put their trust in God. But men distrust God, which is the message of last weekend, the fall, and then that distrust broke a relationship. So today we're going to talk about chosen nation uh, because right after men's fall, God immediately had a plan to patch that relationship, to bring restoration and reconciliation. The fall wasn't a surprise to God because God foreknew everything. So which is why whether it's the Romans 8 or Revelation 13, it talks about how the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, which means that Christ has already prepped to be the salvation. Now, I know as I said that, you may have a lot of thinking in your mind. So why then God created the world? Why, why all that? We can potentially dialogue later at the end of the service, but I just want you to know, uh, biblically, God immediately already had something in mind. And this is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 to 15, the moment when men fell, and this is what the Lord said, okay? And God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15, which you read together, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Within that passage is what we call, the theological world, call it the proto-evangelium. Would you say that together? proto evangelium, not proton saga, okay? Proto-evangelium, okay? So if you really want to be smart, this is what we call the first mention of the seed of God's providing salvation to all mankind. So in the theological world. So tomorrow when you go to office, you will meet someone who goes to church. He says, do, do you know Proto-Evangelium? Uh, and they'll be like, wow, so impressed with you, okay? So that's what in the theological world. It's called Proto-Evangelium. It simply means the first seed of thought uh, when God wanted to provide salvation to all men. But in that particular verse, in Genesis 3.15, it has these three simple thoughts. Number one, God talked about there's going to be a conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And he says that this is, this is a continuing conflict that's going to happen throughout. And the Bible displayed the conflict between these both in the rest of the chapters of the Bible. Uh, secondly, he talked about there's going to come a he, because he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there is a coming one that is going to utterly dealt a big blow uh, when the head was bruised simply means the one that controlled the entire system uh, is going to be destroyed. And then in the midst of that conflict, uh, that he will suffer a bit of his heel where he is being hurt as well. Uh, so a lot of scholars believe that that is when Jesus died on the cross, uh, where the book of Galatians and Philippians, you know, talk about how God utterly destroyed the work of the enemy 
And at the same time, Jesus died on that cross for you and I. So in this, that verse that you read, Genesis 3.15, it has that three-seat thought. Uh, but we will talk about the conquest in our next sermon, uh, which is the one that we're going to talk about week four. I'm going to talk about redemption plan of God. All right, so kind of walk with me uh, for today on this chosen nation. Now, before I land at the chosen nation, based on Genesis 3, I'm going to talk through the continuing conflict. I'm going to give you a list when you look through the Bible of the different conflict between the seeds of the serpent and the seeds of the woman. Uh, so you'll find that, uh, you know, it's almost like when God declared to the serpent that someone is going to destroy you, the serpent will try to strike back. So for the longest time, the serpent, the evil one, would have ever thought that who could this he be? Who is that coming he? So if you look through the Bible, there were many, many moments there were conflict. Uh, some of the big ones is like pharaohs who mass murder the babies. He wanted to eradicate. And the story talk about how God preserved the life of Moses through some most uh, fascinating story of how it was the pharaoh's daughter, that princess that actually raised up Moses. And then you have uh, Haman, uh, which, is a, which is an advisor to the, to the Persian king who wanted to eradicate the entire race of the Israel and God through Esther uh, and Mordecai uh, saved that nation. And then you have King Herod who mass murdered the baby, any baby that's below two years old because he was so afraid that this King Jesus will dethrone his throne and therefore he did everything possible. So when you look through, there is continuing conflict throughout till today. Uh, which is why uh, we have a warfare that goes on in our life. Uh, not only a continued conflict, but the Bible talks about a coming key. So when you look through the genealogies, you find that the seed, the godly seed, was being passed on to one generation to another. So you got Noah, when God rebuilt the world, and then the seed was passed to Shem. And then the Bible captured the story of Abraham. All the way, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. In fact, when it comes to Jesus. So if you go back and read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 16, it traces the story of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. Why Abraham? So the Bible was very clear. Genesis 1 talks about creation and 2. Genesis 3, Genesis 3 the fall. So for 11 chapters in the first 11 chapters of the Bible, it talks about creation and the fall. It talks about how immense was man's sin. And eventually Genesis 12 talks about how God zoomed in to a particular man by the name, we call him Abraham. And Genesis 12, all the way to Revelation, which is hundreds of chapters, describe a relationship between God and Abraham and eventually from Abraham, uh, you have his son, uh, which is Isaac, Jacob, 12 tribes, and the entire nation of Israel. And the rest of the Bible describe all the way the Old Testament, own about 1,500, if you included the 400 years of silence, almost 2,000 years of history of God relating to man, and in particular to a nation of Israel, which is a chosen nation to declare who he is. Uh, so and you, when you kind of go through that, it was actually quite a fascinating story because when God came to Abraham, he was 75 years old and he was at ur Chaldee, which is a land very Babylonian-ish kind. So God came to him and told him that I want you to move and come to a land that I'm going to promise you. At 75 years old, Abraham went, took the step of faith. And the Bible tells us 
that he, in fact, when he settled down in the land of Israel, God says that, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to give you a son and eventually there's going to be a nation. Now, I want you to know that Abraham by then, they were barren, Abraham and Sarah. And they were old, so 75 years. By the time Abraham had Isaac, he was 99 years old. The wife is, I think, 89 or, 89 or 90 years old. That was how old they were. In fact, the Bible tells us a story how when the angel came and told Abraham and Sarah they're going to have a son, Abraham laughed. If you are 90 years old, someone tell you you're going to, you're going to pregnant, would you laugh? Some of us will laugh, some of us will die. Okay, but that was a true story. Abraham and Sarah, they kind of mock and say, that's impossible. Not only the Bible says they're going to have a son, but I'm going to make you a great nation. But they don't even have a child. But that was how much God was willing. And in fact, the story continued. He has his Isaac, which is, his, which is a promised son. And then through Isaac eventually, Isaac bore Jacob and Esau. They were twins. Uh, and and uh, God came and, and spoke to a prophet that you have two nations in your stomach not only two babies. You know how much battle it is with two nations, Jacob and Esau, must be a very difficult pregnancy, okay? Anyway, the story says that, but Esau, he says the elder one will serve the younger one because the seed was passed on through Jacob. And after Jacob, he had 12 sons. And you know the story. And the 12 sons, they were growing together, siblings, rivalry. One day, 11 sons come together and say, we're going to bully the youngest one, which is Joseph. They said, we are going to sell Joseph to the Egyptian. So they sold Joseph make some money. They were very happy. But Joseph, a pity one, went through entire journey of misery from prison but because God is with him. You read the Bible. Consistently, the Bible says, God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. And in prison, he became prime minister. And Joseph has to go through the unforgiveness and all the entire journey. But because of Joseph being a prime minister, famine hit that region. And Joseph gotten the whole entire family to come to Egypt. And the Bible talks about when they were in Egypt, they grew and grew and grew. By the time they grew, they were a couple of two to three million. The Pharaoh that took over the throne did not know who Joseph is. And at some point, they made every one of them to become a slave. You know what? Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 7, when Moses told the nation of Israel, he had this little verse. He says, did you know why God chose you to be a chosen nation? It was very clear. He says, not because you were powerful, not because you were cute, not because you were smart. He says, I chose you because you were the smallest among the nation. Israel wasn't even a nation. They were just a whole bunch of slaves. So God took them. And with his mighty arms, he brought them to a place that they became a kingdom, which is the nation of Israel. You know why? Because God wanted to showcase to the entire world that this is my chosen people. And if you were to put your trust in me, I will take you, someone that's limited, someone that's poor, someone that's helpless, someone that is slave, I can make you and turn you into a great nation. And the story goes on, especially when Israel was at its peak with King Solomon, with the wealth and the wisdom and everything. So much so that Queen Sheba, which is from the eastern part of another country, heard about the wealth and the wisdom of Israel, make all the way, took Air Asia. 
came all the way to visit King Solomon. And the Bible tells us that King Solomon, instead of telling Queen Sheba, this is because of Jehovah God, who actually took a whole bunch of us, we were slaves, we were nobody, and made us to be a great nation. Would you consider it? It was the best time to actually evangelize what we call the Great Commission. But Solomon did not do that. And eventually, the whole kingdom of Israel went down. But that was really a story. So sometimes when people ask me why God chose a nation of Israel, it was the worst of all nations. It was really the most hopeless, the most impossible, the most difficult nation, the most stubborn one. But God took them and turned them around to make them a great nation because God wanted the rest of the nation to know that this is the specimen. If you were to put your trust in God, God can turn around. Uh, no matter what your situation is. Okay, so we're going to pick up the story from Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3 because there was some major thinking that I need to download to every one of you. All right, now. So now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, which is why part of the Abrahamic covenant which is Genesis 12, eventually Genesis 15, Genesis 18. And then it just went on. There were many, many times God told Abraham, told, told Isaac, God told Jacob that I, I promise you. And land has always been a big part of the promises of God. Now, I know the moment we talk about the land, there is a political view about the Israel and Palestinian conflict. Uh, we will not go there today. But in the dialogue, if you, if you want to ask, I'll do my best to help you to gain some understanding. But in their mind, land has always been part of God's promises. Uh, because God told Abraham, this is the land, I'm going to give it to you. And then he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. You know, uh, when we think through, uh, let me ask you this. How many of you have ever met a Canaanite? How many of you have met Jebusite? How many of you have met Hittites? How many of you have met, turn on the light? Okay, never mind, okay? None of us has met any of these tribal people. Why? Those, the Jebusite, the Hittites, the Babylon, they were all existed with the nation of Israel, but they no longer exist. But the nation of Israel still exists. You know, the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel had so many times where they were supposed to eradicate it from the earth. Uh, so if you study the nation of Israel, they had about 36 massive wars. And there was about 17 times Jerusalem was actually being brought down to ashes. They went through the most horrific situation during the Holocaust where six million of them were eradicated. But today, they remain a nation. 1948, when they came back together, the day they was declared, and I think it was, it was 14 of May, if I'm not mistaken, or 13 of May. I think it was 14 of May. The next day, they was invaded by four different Arab nation. Now, I'm not trying to be political and I'm not saying that what they do and all that they do is correct. I think you've got to look through the brutality of biblically and how irresponsible that is, okay? So there's nothing, nothing to justify for that. But my point is, uh, God remains to be faithful in this nation. They, they should not exist. One of the smaller pieces of land surrounding by so many nations that were against them, but they still exist today. 
And secondly, the Bible says, I will not only make you a great nation, he says, I will make you and your name great. So not only a great name, not only a great nation, but there's going to be a great name. Uh, You know, I was Googling and was reading about Nobel Prize. Uh, It was fascinating to note that Israel is only less than 1% of human population. Less than 1%. So it was very, very tiny, puny, small. But did you know, they have about 20 to 25% of Nobel Prize winner. So many of the invention that we have today. Uh, uh, Today, this morning, I received from Peggy a little video that talks about how uh, one of them created uh, for blind people the ability to see, a gadget that helps blind people to see. So many things. So somehow, there is that greatness. Not only that, then the Bible says, so that you'll be a blessing, a blesser who bless you, a curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know, when you think along that line, there's so many things that because of that nation, uh, we are where we are. For example, if I were to come to you and say, take up your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 4, you turn to it. Do you know why you have your Bible? It's because of the nation. Because of the immaculate, the way they kept the tradition of copying the Bible or the Old Testament, which is why we have the Bible today. We have the Ten Commandments because of God gave it to a nation called Israel. And we have what we call by then a Jewish saviour which is meant for the world, which is Jesus Christ. Therefore today, you and I can actually believe in Jesus. If there is no nation of Israel, there is no Jesus, there is no Christianity, no Bible. You know, when I think about this verse, this verse is so packed. When God gave to Abraham about, this is 2000, so this is about 6,000 years ago, about 2000 BC, more or less there. That is when God called Abraham in Genesis 12 to where we are today. Now, I'm not talking about the political side of Israel. And Romans 9 and 11 is a fantastic chapter that talks about the nation of Israel has its own blind spot right now. And God is dealing with that nation. But one day, they will come to know who Christ is. And they will, hope they will be part of all of us that worship God together. All right, that's the nation of Israel. Now, I want to just move on a little bit and do my best to create dialogue. The entire Old Testament tells us the story of God's dealings with the nation of Israel. Uh, sometimes people ask me this. He says, you know, people ask me, says, Pastor, how can you trust that God is real? Everybody says that, yeah, God is real. I just want you to know, the way the Bible was written wasn't a philosophical book. The Bible wasn't written, chapter 1, who is God? Oh, okay, I understand. Chapter 2, who is human? Chapter 3, who is devil? Chapter 4, who is in between? You know what I'm saying? There's no such a book. I did not hold a Bible like that. The whole Bible was written over 2,000 years of history. And you know, you you know, right? It's written by 40 over 1,000 author, 1,500 years. Or, you know, they did not have a writing Bible apps that, or chat group where everybody come together. No. But every one of them was talking about their dealings with God. And it is one of those incredible stories. How do I know that God is trustworthy? I just look back history. I look back for 1,500 to 2,000 years of God's dealing to where they are today. And I know that God has to be real. It's almost like the way God wanted Israel to be a specimen so that we know that God is faithful to him, to them. So when you go through the entire Old Testament, you find that they have all their challenges. They have their moments where they were obedient towards God. Abraham had this moment where he was obedient to God when he took Isaac to Mount Moriah. Nothing to do with Moriah carry. Though he carry Isaac to Moriah, okay? 
And he obeyed God, and God provided a lamb, if you know the story. But do you know that Abraham was so messed up because there were two times when, when he wanted to save himself, he actually sacrificed the wife. So he, he, when he went down to Egypt, a king saw that the wife was very pretty. So went to Abraham and said, hey, this girl is very pretty. Can, can I get to know her? He said, yeah, please, uh, she's my sister. Uh, until God came in the middle of the night and told the king, he says, please, uh, hands off, that actually belongs to me. It's one of my vessels. And then the king had a nightmare and then woke up the next day and quickly sent Abraham away and gave him all the gift. So Abraham has his mess. Isaac has his mess. Jacob has his mess. Joseph, every one of them has his mess. So when you look through the Bible, it was fascinating because you find that it was men's weaknesses, but it was talk about God's strength and His favour. So it says his own rebellion, it has his, it has his dealing, it's the administration, the purpose. Much can be talked about all of that, okay? But because of time, I want to move on to this last two part. So when you look through this whole thing about God's chosen nation, took a man and then eventually brought up to be a nation and had 2,000 years of dealings where we get to read and get to see uh, men's ups and downs. So what do we learn? We learn three things about human. We learn that we are all tainted by sin. We learn that we tend to stray away from God. We learn that we can't do it in our own strength. We, we just can't. History has told us again and again, we utterly need a saviour. That tells us how much we need of a saviour. But what does it tell you about God? It tells you that God is a God that never gives up. For 2,000 years, they were rebellious, but God kept wooing them. In fact, it was a moving story, one of the last prophet, Hosea, where God came to this particular prophet and he wanted him to marry uh, Gomez, which is, which is a girl, uh, and they fell in love and he married her and the Bible talked about how she went astray. She became unfaithful. In fact, she was so unfaithful that she went on to be potentially in the prostitution ring and all of that. And after years of Hosea trying to look for her, finally when he found her, God says that I want you to go to the marketplace and redeem her back. And you know, at that time, she was absolutely distraught used, wasted in every capacity. But you know, God asked Gomez to redeem her back, to tell the nation of Israel. He says, I was, I am like Gomez. There were time again and again and again. You walk astray, but I woo you back and I will redeem you back. It tells us about God is a God that does not give up. He keeps pursuing. He keeps forgiving. And He desires reconciliation and restoration. That tells you about who God is. I want to end with this little verse, 2 Timothy 2.13. Would you read together? If we are faithless, he remains faithful. This is one of the most, uh, this is a very personal scripture to me because when I was about in my 20s, I walked away from God. Some of you know the story. Uh, so I was studying in USM, uh, maybe my 20 years old or, or 19 years old. Uh, after I walked away from God for about three years, uh, someone then invited me to church. Uh, and, and I wanted to go to church, not because I wanted to go to church. I just wanted to see how church has evolved, whether church still has tambring dance, uh, whether church still sings certain song. How has church been? And I, and I really wonder that. So I remember I, I sneaked into a church. Nobody knew. I sat a couple of hundred seaters. I sat at a corner far end. And, and God met me there. When God met me there, His presence came over my life. 
uh, I was sitting by myself and I started to cry. Uh, so some of you know the story. I cried when it was fast song, still, still okay. But the best part was when I cried during worship. That is good blend in. And then, but when they started to make announcement, I was also still crying. Uh, that doesn't blend very well. You know, we're going to, and as you remember, we're going to meet so-and-so house for a live group, whatever, and I'm crying, you know. And all my all the auntie, uncle sitting next to me, there was three seats away from me. And the auntie looked at me and says, young man, don't worry. If she dumb you, you can find another one. And I'm thinking to myself, nobody dumb me, okay? Nobody dumb me, okay? Some of them thought that I failed my exam. And I said, young man, don't worry. If you fail exam, you can do it again. I, I'm thinking to myself, none of all that. And I don't know how to explain to them because I was crying, I was crying, I was crying. And in the midst of my tears, this verse came to me. He says, if we are faithless, God remains faithful. You know, today, I want you to walk away that we serve a faithful God. And how many times were you faithless? How many times you thought to yourself, I'm going to walk away. How many times you thought to yourself, I'm not, I'm, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care about God. I just want to live my own life. But did you know, God cares. He loves. He reaches out. He continues to woo us. This is how incredible, faithful God is. So as we, before we move into dialogue, I would just stand. I want you to take about maybe 30 seconds of your life. And I want this verse to sink into you. There are times when we are faithless. God remains faithful. God, we just come before you this morning. Lord, we are so faithful for your faithfulness. Uh, you told the nation of Israel in the book of Jeremiah, I've loved you with an everlasting love. In the midst of their rebellion, captivity, Lord, we thank you for the way you have loved us again and again and again. Today, as we stand before you, help us to love you back. Help us to put our trust in you. And that is our prayer. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.